0: How's Work is an unscripted one-time counseling session focused on work. For the purposes of maintaining confidentiality, names, employers, and other identifiable characteristics have been removed. But their voices and their stories are real.
1: You can find it on the PropG pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come and right now it's the best price of the year at $29 go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29 that's s y l v a n 29.com
2: creative relationships are complex multi-layered and often intense whether it is an actor and the agent, a writer and their editor, or in this case, an artist and her art dealer. These relationships often straddle a dimension that is highly personal and intimate with business and professionalism, a line that can often be blurred, can even sometimes completely dissolve.
3: I think we have a really great relationship, actually. We don't have any, like, points of contention but sometimes when I'm going to work with a new artist that can cause like a sort of challenging aspect because of our
2: proximity. And especially when the artist is just starting out and there is such a sense of being taken care of, of being embraced. The artist can say, you saw me, you discovered me and while she has felt deeply seen and understood she lives in constant fear that she could be replaced by a younger, new, rising, emerging
4: artist. You know, in my, in my darker moments, there's a sense that she has 14 of me on her roster, and I have one of her.
2: The gallerist, who invests deeply in her artists, she too is afraid of loss, of disloyalty, of betrayal, you come to me when you're young and innocent. I help you rise. And then you go to the bigger ones.
3: She does have other gallerists and we will have more gallerists. So eventually there'll be three of us across the world working with her. But I see the relationships with my artists. I, I am extremely close to some of them. There's a, like a handful that are really some of my best friends, including her. I think it's an interesting thing to explore that she has this feeling because I don't feel that way.
2: This dynamic between jealousy and the fear of loss is at the heart of their conversation. That is not surprising that you would have a different experience of this. You know the experience of one artist with many gallerists, but you are for her, the first one that she has known. And on some level, what I'm hearing, what I heard, what I added to your sentence when you spoke was, and I would love it if you were all to me (laughs) and I didn't have to share you. Mm -hmm. And of course, when I hear a sentence like that, my next thought is, tell me about your experience with sharing.
4: Mm. I mean, I. I feel like I should immediately say that I'm that I'm not an only child and that I feel like that would be the the ultimate stereotype for someone who doesn't quite know how to share but I'm not I'm not entirely sure I do know how to share. I'm not sure I can tell where sharing ends and me getting nothing begins. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah my brother and I growing up we had very different childhoods I think I think we had a very different attitude from each of our parents and and I think a huge premium was placed on being special. And if not the only one, then the best one, the most clever one, the the highest grades, the best at sport. And I, I jumped through those ho- hoops pretty well. And I And I wonder whether I came into, you know, this, which is my first art relationship, you know, where there is a real friendship and there is real work. I wonder whether I came to that expecting to be sort of, Treasured for you know jumping through certain hoops above you know these sort of pseudo-siblings that we call the other artists.
2: This is an amazing sentence. Sharing is the beginning of nothing.
4: Yeah, just like a hop skip and a jump towards eventually having things taken.
2: Mm-hmm. How did you meet and how did you choose each other?
3: So uh, someone who works with me had known her work and I had asked him, is there any interesting artists I should look at? And he had recommended I look at her work. Um, I wrote to her and said, I'd love to meet you for a studio visit. And I didn't hear back for like three weeks. And I thought, God, that's so rude. Like, even if she doesn't want to, I think that at least she'd write and say, thanks, but no thanks. Finally, she wrote back and said, "Okay, let's meet. And it was just before Christmas. And I went over to her studio and the way that I remember it. Yeah, Christmas Eve. Eve. The way I remember it was that we just had this incredible like immediate connection. We spoke for hours and when we left, we were already like, let's do this. So I always describe it as like getting married in Vegas. Like for me, it felt like a very instant, like um, emotional and intellectual connection. I always think of it as we were both entering a new life for different reasons. Mm -hmm. It's like we met at this really key stage where I had just finished a cancer treatment and had just broken up a 15-year marriage. And I was having to, like, I don't know, rediscover my identity on so many levels. And I think she was in a similar place for different reasons. So I think that was also a really meaningful thing for me that, Mm -hmm. that we started at this point together.
4: And for you? Yeah, I'll, I'll cop to the Vegas marriage style. I just, I, I mean, I had, I had a slot at rehab booked when you came to the studio. Well, anorexia that morphed into a kind of anorexia bulimia had just been getting steady, steadily and steadily, steadily worse. I was drinking a lot of alcohol. I was using drugs. I was sort of stepping into the art world for the first time and couldn't believe how much free alcohol was there and uh, how many drugs I was being offered. I was incredibly unhappy and they were sort of, you know, my work was being shown for the first time. I think think there's something about these dreams sort of starting to come true that completely freaked me. And I was, yeah, the professionals I was seeing at the time were putting pressure on me to go to rehab. And so we met, however that email got replied to. And I remember I texted you a week later or something and I said, so I'm gonna go to rehab 28 days. And you said, okay well, I guess we'll just ship the work while you're not there and I'll see you in Brussels in March.
2: I'm amused to hear that the way she accepted this new job offer was by basically not saying thank you, I'm really honoured, but by saying I'm going to rehab for 28 days, I'll see you when I come out. And for the employer, the dealer, the gallerist, to basically say, okay, take care of yourself, I'll deal with the work, see you when you come out. That in itself frames something that is very unique to the relationship between the dealer and the artist and to the creative relationships in the art world altogether.
4: Just that you were okay with that and didn't see it as a sort of inconvenience or a or some kind of extra drama that you didn't need was... And, you know, and you'd really, really dug into everything I'd made that was, you know, everything that was possibly available on the internet. And then more that you dug into everything I'd made, including my writing. And, and I, yeah, I just thought I, I have to work with this person.
2: Because she was deeply curious and invested in really getting to know you and what you do.
4: Yeah. And she was reeling off bits of my writing that I forgot I wrote that were written in, you know, 2011 or something and. And she said, What do you mean about that? And I said, Oh God, my God, I really don't remember.
2: Nothing beats feeling deeply understood, seen, and then also supported. As an artist, it isn't just something you do, it is who you are. And so if you see my work, you see me. If you value the work, you value me. The degree of identification between the maker and the product, between the creator and the artwork is so intense. And that itself gets re-experienced in the relationship sometimes with the gallerist as these two women are experiencing with each other
4: yeah if i hadn't have been so out of it and possibly drunk i i wish i wish i could remember it more
2: but maybe this is part of what she gets about you too sure
3: what is what do you
2: mean that you were not even faced by the 28 day rehab maybe understood her fragility, her battles, and how they intertwine with her artwork.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that for me, if you want to redefine some kind of like unconditional acceptance of someone, to me, that is it. When you see the person fully and you're like, that's okay. So for me, I, I have, yeah, I work with different artists who have different sort of a turmoil or whatever but i i'd not face that all they can tell me anything
4: um you're drawn to it yeah like to your, it, these anything. are your calories you run on this stuff
2: <laughs> that's not quite it, that's not I like quite it. it. <laughs> you have food metaphors everywhere <laughs>
4: yeah expect expect a fair few more i mean i yeah this is i mean it's still it's still an issue for me it's still it's still annoyingly the forefront of my mind but i yeah. I Are just you, don't like
3: the metaphor because it's not like I like, mm, this is so delicious. No, I love like it a, as a story. That's not, not it at all. It's not a
4: thirst for drama and gossip. You know, you know what to do with turmoil. You know, you don't take it all for yourself and sort of like delight in it. You just, you know what to do with it. You know what to do with mine. Say more. I think I grew up with two doctor parents, physical doctors, you know, medicine and... When a mental illness occurred at the very beginning of my teens, I they had trouble taking it seriously. There was a sense of like, you know, get an illness that we can see. I mean, even though it is, you know, for all intents and purposes, written on your body when you have anorexia, you know. But that I sort of grew up with cancer being, you know, the the ultimate thing that befalls you and anorexia product of a kind of of a middle class, like spoilt bratishness that just gets taken too far. And that we both arrived to the relationship with, you know, with these bodies that weren't quite how they meant they were supposed to have turned out. You helped me take my illness a, a little bit more seriously as an illness, you know, rather than some kind of uh, moral deficiency. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: Connect this very personal, very intimate, very physical granular relationship with the fact that it also is a professional relationship. Yeah. How do you go back and forth? Yeah,
3: I always say that a artwork cannot help but be an extension of the artist when it's a good artist. They they can't help but for the work to be an extension of themselves. And so for me, the the way that I think about it now is that you have two people who are just trying to find their own truth, like the artist by creating me by trying to connect those dots between what they're creating what I'm thinking what someone else is going to think when they look at it and so I've accepted that that there is no real boundary and I think that the fact of it being this like third thing that holds you together to me is not dissimilar to like if you're married and you have children like you're co-creating something for me it feels like one more pillar rather than something that gets in the way it helps hold up the relationship during those moments of instability, that it gives us motivation to like see it through.
2: Because we have a shared goal. Yeah. That is separate from just the two of us.
3: Yeah, that's how I think of it. And the way that I work with my artists is I really like to give them as much freedom as possible.
2: What she highlights in her role as the art dealer, is that there is the relationship between the artist and the dealer, but there is also the partnership, the joint project, which is the actual creation of the career of the artist, in which they are both involved. The artist brings the work, the dealer sells the work, makes it known to the world outside. As she describes it so powerfully, I connect the dots. But they need each other, and they articulate it quite beautifully. And the project keeps them in check.
4: I think where, where you see the project of an art career or this thing that we share as a, as a third pillar that kind of keeps it together, I just see that as a, a kind of more pressure, more like the stakes are raised. Because if I lose you, not only do I lose you, I lose the work that we've built together. And I think because you've had relationships with other artists, you know what it's like to push through. I definitely you
2: know, do. <laughs> I really do.
4: <laughs>
2: For you, it's I have you or I lose you. Yeah. And in order to have you, I almost need to feel like I i am the only one. and Or I'm your only one or I'm your special one. Because... If it's not 100% of that, then I instantly vacillate to the other side, which is, I'm not just one of many, I'm nobody. Mm
4: -hmm. Yeah.
2: You know, that's a very, very personal experience, a very deeply personal experience to bring to what is also a very professional relationship.
4: Yeah. What What I thought of as work, you know, growing up, especially, you know, with doctor, lawyer, real estate people. This is just not what I thought work was. Mm -hmm. The art world is really where you can, people can be very, very messy. People can lie, you know, we have kleptomaniacs, we have compulsive liars, we have people, you know, who probably should have gotten into therapy 25 years ago but for some reason haven't and use a lot of cocaine. Like it just, it's a place that doesn't ask you to look at your problems. And that I think that's a blessing and a curse. And I'm not and I'm talking about the art world in general. I'm not talking about your kind of microcosm of it. It's a
2: place that doesn't ask you to look at your problems, or it's also a place that actually sees those problems as sources of creativity.
4: Yeah, that too. I mean I, I think there's a in some cases there is almost a superstition where you think that in order to, you know, be good at art, good at making things, good in good in this field, that you need to hang on to your all the dark shit.
3: But, you know, it's interesting because for me, I agree with the sentiment of what you're saying, but I see it from such a different angle. So there is definitely this story that people tell themselves about the tortured geniuses, whatever. But the way that I see it is the art world and art allows for more freedom than most spaces. And that's for every participant. It's not just the artists. It's also the collectors, the curators. And so for me, it becomes a place of like being a holding space for any and every human condition because we're all coming together around an emotional discussion via visual means. And then also to the thing of like the personal and the professional, when you asked her to elaborate on having such a personal take towards a professional issue, like I feel the same actually. I think that my take is extremely personal because I come from this, like I hate these mothering analogies that come up in the art world in the dealer artist relation. But if I'm honest, like ultimately, I have a belief that I'm enacting a sort of like what I think if I had to define what like good mothering is. So I do also approach it from an extremely personal place. But for me, in both those cases, it feels like a positive thing.
2: It's so interesting. As you, as I listen to you, I'm thinking we sometimes lack vocabulary or lack metaphors. It's like when people have an intense relationship at work, they say, it's my work husband, or, or here you talk about mother. It's as if we have to go back to the primary sources, but it actually, it's a very ancient relationship. It has existed throughout history in multiple different forms. It's a mentor, it's a doula, it's a teacher, it's a lot of things. Um, not everybody does it in as personal a way as you do it.
3: No, most people don't. But for me, it becomes really important to be able to be all of those things, not just with their artwork, but with them, because I want to see them thrive as people. And when they thrive as people, what they put out into the world to connect to other human beings also thrives. And so I see it as part of the same thing, the same goal. Let
2: me ask you something. Because the the fear of loss was expressed on the other side here for a moment. Do you have it? I mean, many times when you find people at the beginning of their careers and they grow, there is this notion that you have to move on to the next agent, to the next editor, to the next art dealer who is bigger, who has bigger access. And there is a whole experience around loyalty and disloyalty that I think is on both sides, would you say?
3: Yeah, absolutely. This artist that completely exploded, like exploded and went to work with one of the biggest galleries, but decided to stay with me as well, which at the time, now some people do it, but it was really exceptional at the time and people would always use it as as examples in the press. And he stayed with me because of our personal relationship
2: but if he hadn't, you would have felt like...
3: Yeah, because, you know, you start working with these artists in both cases. Like, he was still in art school when I met him, and she was still in art school. Like, really, hadn't done much at all. And extremely talented people, but I think it's very easy to take for granted the role that the context that a dealer creates, especially once you've kind of benefited from that context and suddenly see yourself as above it, Um which I had a long journey with that with this other artist, you know, having and then eventually after he settled into this big gallery, finally came back to valuing what I bring. And for me, um, to be honest, like, I think this, this experience of cancer really changed me because it forced me to have to accept uncertainty on such a fundamental level. How do I say it? I've had to develop a different kind of sense of self-worth that I know what I do. I know what I bring to the table. And of course, if an artist were to be like, Oh, well, I'm just going to move somewhere else now because I'll make more money or it's more prominent. Uh, I've got to a place now where I genuinely believe it's their loss. And if that happened to me, I think I'd be like, okay, you know, because I want to be in a relationship with someone who wants to be in a relationship with me, but I can see it is painful. Like it hasn't happened to me yet, but of course, if, because I haven't experienced the disloyalty, but I'm sure that if I had, or if I ever do, it'll be very painful personally.
2: Like a betrayal?
3: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah.
2: But you, when you think about losing her, you don't ever think that she too could have that feeling, that she could also live with the fear of losing the artists. Um, This is true for both of you. You can both find others and your relationship is one that is deeply voluntary and, and chosen. It is.
4: I mean, they, yeah, there are no. We always say like there are no. You know, there are no contracts or legal, legally binding parts. This is a world completely based on trust, and yeah. the trust is key. And I just, I think there's when I when I look at other dealer artist relationships with friends, or you know, when I go and meet other dealers, I I just think, fuck, she set the bar so high. She spoiled me. I'm never <laughs> gonna. I'm not gonna find anything. I think you know that you've got the market cornered on deep emotional gallery artist <laughs> connection. Like, and you know that someone can go to a blue chip gallery where you, where you meet the owner once when you first join and never see them again for 10 years. And you do that, you do that closeness better than, better than any dealer I know.
3: But the, the other side of that, that's true. Like I know what my place is and I trust that place. And so if they go to a bigger, richer gallery, I know what I provide, but you do have, other gallery relationships. And um, of course, when she started working with them, I had a little like, oh, what if she likes them more than me? Like, of course I did. But then I, I the way that I pushed through it is thinking they have so many qualities that I don't have, but I also have qualities that they don't have. But, but the other thing I'll say is like, yes, I have 14 artists, but I'm not as close to all of them. You know, I have maybe three or four that I'm extremely close to. But
2: does that closeness help you in the business strategy or you've learned over the years that deeply personal and efficiently strategic don't necessarily have to clash?
3: If I can understand as much as I can about the way that they think and the way that they experience the world, when they need guidance or they're stuck on something with the work, sometimes I think I can be like, I think I know the direction they want to go in, not just with the artwork that they output, but the way that they relate to being in the art world. I I know if it's someone who needs protecting and sheltering. I know if it's someone who's a total hustler and needs to be thrown more people for them to meet. And I, you know, so it's really, I find it really helpful to understand the human behind the work because then each one needs their individual strategy for how to thrive. So it's almost like I don't see them conflicting because knowing them so personally allows me to best strategize for them.
2: What do
4: you think is her strategy with you? I think I think I'm a I'm a tricky one in some ways because I think I'm good with people, but you know not to you know not to put me on a table full of 10 billionaires and be like enjoy. <laughs> you know, you know how I love to talk to you and you and she'll throw she'll throw a dinner i mean this was a pre covid era which feels like a year ago now but we have a dinner after each person's show and her seating plans are immaculate it might sound a bit machiavellian but she knows who hates each other and who wants to talk and who is best you know after and who will get on better than them and who should they be sat near and who should go for a cigarette together and just i don't know i think i feel like that's sometimes where it comes together in a very literal way it makes me realize how much I miss that.
3: Yeah, and it's great because everyone's always like, "I have such a great time in your dinner." <laughs> and I'm like, I have a master so here. plan here.
2: It's a great social psychologist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, genuinely.
4: <laughs> I feel like it's like a mother bird pre-chewing the food to so then feed to me to the <laughs> another the food, house. another yeah. food one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there we go. Uh, Do you even no. notice it? Uh, no, only when you, when and, you laugh. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But you're my protector is what I'm saying that you are a gatekeeper. And when that, you know, when I'm not always great at saying no to people, because I, you know, every, every show I get offered every, every person who's interested, I always slightly wonder whether they'll be the last and whether I should, you know, make hay while the sun shines or something. But I think you're very good at saying, no, 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 you've got a 60 year career ahead of you. We need to take things slow. This guy sucks. You should not give him a work.
3: Yeah, but I also never say no on like, for you. I'm always like, this is what I think, but do what you want to do.
2: What I'm hearing her say here is that she's emphasizing the longevity, the lifespan, the decades that it takes to cultivate the body of work of an artist. But the young artist... Is sometimes very hungry and not easily satiated. And with her history of anorexia, she is primed for that. And so her galleries tells her: don't drink yourself to death, don't starve yourself. Maintain your complexity. Bring it into your work.
1: You can find it on the PropG pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: You know, it's a very gendered thing also to be a a woman in the art world. Like we've both suffered at the hands of that. And there are things that you need to protect also from like the way that people want to portray the image of an artist, especially if it's like a younger woman, you know, like you'll often see a studio photograph of a good-looking woman artist, they always want to include her in the photo, you know, in this way that they don't do with male artists. So it's a lot of these people that try to circumvent. And it comes from a really misogynist place of like, let me teach you how to do this, you know. And, and they can't tolerate the idea of like a female artist saying no to them. You know, I, that's the buffer that I think I, where I come in and the more sort of protective, like saying no way, because I know, I think I know what she wants.
2: I hear us talking about boundaries. I hear us talking about gender. I hear you, the artist, talking about satiability. Is there enough? Is there not enough? Will I be enough? Will this be the last? Will there be more? Am I the only one? Um, I hear jealousy. Um, Those are the main ones that kind of, they've not been necessarily said out loud, but they are the ones that are resonating for me and of course i tie some of it with the eating disorder because what you described in the beginning yeah it's it is a physical way to to discuss, somatic language to describe you know the ill being on the inside here it is inscribed on my body don't you see it and yeah. you're a visual artist and it's all about seeing you know seeing connecting interpreting internalizing the work the artist, the creation
4: we talk about this never enough thing a lot, yeah, both in terms of decide, very abstract ideas of like success or like money that you know, even if I uh, accomplished everything I want to in my art career, I'd still feel like a, a bit of a void mm-hmm. and I guess I never really I never really got a handle on what it is to have an appetite. I definitely know what hunger looks like, but I'm not really sure what fullness looks like. Endless food metaphors aside, <laughs> it is it is less and less to do with food as I kind of move through life. It's really about, you know, getting everything while I still can and then getting rid of everything when it gets too much. My, my, my you know, my workaholism, my, you know, my need to create every day, nine to five, um, without fail, has both you know replaced all of the drives that it took to you know to starve myself for so many years and also I could be depleted I could be drunk I could be high I would always 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 work but I you know I with with these other artists I mean not so much the one that we've been mentioning the most but a but a newer one and equally young and I think youth has a lot to do with it because I've you know I've been the baby of the gallery ostensibly for for a couple of years before this guy came along and he's just a little bit younger than me and and I know I, I, you know I often turn it into joke, the idea of like you know cutting him down or you know insulting him or something, but I you know I, I hate that side of me and who you know who if he you know if he lived in the same country as us and you know I'd met him more, I'm sure would become you know a sibling just like some of some of the other artists are, but there's something about how far away he is in loads of ways and how mythologized that his character has become and how and how jealous I get it gets to me and I guess when you have an eating disorder you can kind of really tell what's getting to you the eating disorder tends to know what what's getting to me before I do which is this guy is going to crowd me out he has a you know a more remarkable technical ability than I do I, I, I don't know just the idea that he might be more amiable and you know less less cruel less you know Less of a liability, maybe, um,
2: and basically he would replace you. I mean, that is the notion, right? He would become yeah. visible; you would become invisible.
4: I don't know. I don't know. There was a the first instance of seeing his work when you first showed it. Um, someone mistook it for mine, and there was like a, a kind of deep uh, cutting of, "Oh my God, not that." Not that originality is any kind any worthwhile sort of target to aim for in the art world because everything's been done, but it just you know just my my thing my sort of my idiosyncrasy is in in jeopardy. Yeah, and it was hard not to resent you slightly for that.
2: She echoes an old contradiction, right? On the one hand, everything's been done in the art world. And on the other hand, God knows what this new person may do that hasn't been done yet. There is nothing to be unique about, and yet I am so jealous that you would be more unique than me. And while she talks about her jealousy, I'm also aware that the dealer is thinking about her loyalty. Because you give so much as the dealer, as the adult, as the validator, I can imagine that loyalty, trust, reliability, transparency, become essential for you. Because one day you will say, it's unbelievable what I did for this woman. I was there at three o'clock in the morning when I helped her with that. I protected her. I made sure that she wasn't taken advantage of. I And I really think this is even beyond the word mother.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> it's, a, it's more than that. It will be like, I thought she would do this to others, but not to me, because of how I treated her.
3: Yeah, absolutely. What you've described, the words you listed, are exactly where my boundary is. It appears that I have no boundaries, but those are exactly my boundaries around trust, honesty, loyalty. Like That is my boundary, and I can guarantee you, as the artist, that I will put your interests ahead of mine. And in return... Yeah, in return, see what I do and with how much like love and care I do it and how how competently I do it and to value that and appreciate that and respect that. And so to not do things that take that for granted. Such as? Not communicating clearly and doing something in a sort of, hidden or dishonest way or this is not specific to her at all I just mean in general in a in a relationship to an artist like it can be anything from you know not being acknowledged on on the wall museum label to you know in the case of this other artist that I work with who I worked with from the very beginning like he will give his other dealer like many many more times the number of works then he'll give me, but I'm the one who'll help him like resolve the ideas or I'm the one who really cares about like where the work is actually going. And so I'm trying to think of other examples when I felt that way.
2: What do you bring with you? What would you say from your own history enters into your relationship with your artists? Your relationship history from early on for that matter?
3: Um, This is something that I've, been toning down in the last few years but I noticed this a lot with like say my marriage and and I do with the artists also where like I have find it very hard to understand that I'm wanted so I had a tendency which I have less now but to create situations where I'm needed because if I'm needed then I know that I'm there but then of course the irony of that is that when you're needed you don't know if you're wanted <laughs> um and the other thing is because some of my artists are my best friends for some years uh, I would always put myself in the position of serving. And if I needed something personally, I wouldn't even ask them. And over the years, I've Mm -hmm. learned how to be more vulnerable in that way. And it's been so nice to see how they are so happy to meet me in that place. So that's something that I'm really trying to change, but it comes, I think it comes from a place of, you know, wanting to be this absolute, which I do associate with, this idea of mother where like, if you can be the absolute, they can never leave you.
2: Right. If you're totally dependent on me, then you won't leave me. And I won't have to worry about not being wanted. And the thing, the theme that actually joins both of you in the way that you've structured your relationship, it is many things, but one theme that just uh, springs at me now emerges here is the protection against abandonment. Oh, totally. For both of you. And before your marriage, this wanting and needing that was established before you got married, right?
3: Yeah. I mean, I just had a a completely, completely emotionally absent mother. Um, Completely. And issues of some fundamental sense of like not deserving and no self-worth and like desire you know being desired is like a theme that comes into my life in many different areas um, that I've had to learn and accept the idea of desirability understand that desire is something that fluctuates you know uh, it's been a big thing for me
4: do you know that oh yeah I just um I think you you assure me that three years ago five years ago you know but just before we met you were a lot you had a much less of a handle on yourself. You were much more controlling. You're a lot more anxious. Whereas I, I see someone who has mastered this, uh, this kind of all or nothing like abandonment or everything attitude to the world, that you have a much more measured idea of it than I do.
3: Yeah, it's just because I see myself
2: in you. She's a younger version of yourself.
3: Not quite, but in some ways, in this abandonment way. And then I really associate it also with resolving femininity, this question of femininity.
2: Let's talk about the femininity, because I, you both know what that refers to, and I don't.
4: I mean...
3: I'll go first, because it's like a weird topic, but it's like there is already a relationship to understanding and trying to fit into a system of femininity that I find difficult. And then the way that I think about it is that we both had these complicated relationships with our body, mine through cancer, yours through eating disorder, where for whatever reason, whether it was chosen or not, that the body was refusing to like comply. And then my marriage fell apart. I, I also relate this to a sort of sexual place where it took me like a couple of years to get back to an understanding of myself as a sexual body, uh, myself as a woman in that way, like my own desires. And so I feel that a lot of our conversations that I really enjoy and I find so enriching are around us trying to negotiate what those different things mean.
4: Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, you were also my first female friend, really. I only, I only hang out with boys. And you, you've helped me see the value and what it is to be friends with women. Um, just having friends that are women puts me a step in the right direction of what kind of woman I want to be. I know you both think
2: that your relationship is very deep and very personal. Are there taboos? Are there things you don't talk about? Are there things you know not to touch?
4: This idea of having children, whether I might want to do that at some point, and I can't help feeling like that you would have total disdain for me (laughs) if I did that.
3: But it's funny because I feel the same way about you. That if I had a child, you would have absolute disdain. (laughs) But I also know that ultimately you would
4: be supportive
3: but I don't know if you know that about me
4: yeah just I there's some part of me that doesn't want to be I don't want to be seen by you as you know conventional or or that maybe you know that's something that you don't you maybe don't consider the most worthwhile use of time or that it's society's will bending me as it as it chooses that I may that I may want to give into that if, you know, if I got married. Because I feel like you've, you know, you've sort of pulled, you've had the curtain pulled pulled up from, from marriage and you you know the, you know you know what a what a divorce looks like and you and I don't think I don't think you care for it. And I just I suppose I always hope that you would be okay with that being something that I would want.
2: As personal as their conversations and their friendship has been kind of astounding that the subject of children has been so silenced as well as the subject of having a partner. If I have a child, will you think of me as lesser, as not serious, as not a real artist? Brings up one of the oldest prejudices, stereotypes that a woman cannot be a mother and a serious artist, or a serious anything else, for that matter. That if you have children, it will eat up your identity and your pursuits will forever be compromised. For two women who are engaged, feminists, fighting supposedly against misogyny, they have internalized that very ideology they're trying to resist.
3: because I choose to live my life in one way doesn't mean that I expect my friends to choose, make the same choices, you know, so I can be very direct about what my position is on certain things, but you know, some of my best friends do live a very conventional life and I don't always look down on it. Um, I question it, but I've done it, you know, so I wouldn't look down on it at all, I would support you in whatever
2: you wanted to do. And this is so interesting, right? This is not about femininity or the female body, but this fear of the criticism of the best friend or of the girlfriend is very, very powerful in relationship between women, friends, galleries, and artists, uh, all included. You would respect me less. You would think I gave in. I sold my soul. I was weak. I became a conformist. I'm a bourgeois. Uh, I'm not a real artist. I was just dabbling. I mean, the list goes on, right?
4: We often talk about how, you know, we worry that maybe motherhood is a way of filling a void that could maybe be filled with other forms of intimacy and that it is grasping for identity where... By having a child you become a mother and you're kind of and there's your identity for the next you know mm-hmm. 18 years or something
3: yeah it's interesting i think it's a really powerful construct to have to grapple with i i probably feel the same like wonder if you would respect me less if i had children or particularly like in relations like a male partner
2: meaning if you have a male partner, that, that, what, that, that too is a throwback to an older image of what it means to be a woman in this world and what one needs as a woman in this world? Uh, it's just, as I glimpsed this
3: idea of like, if, if I had a committed relationship with a man, how would that feel to you? Like, would you also lose respect? Or would you feel that my attention was being taken away from you? Or would you feel,
2: you know?
4: I mean, almost definitely that. That's <laughs> just inevitable, that's just...
2: <laughs> but that should not be a reason for her not to.
4: <laughs> no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And I, I think the difference is, is, I don't think any criticism you might get from me would, would stop you. I worry that perceived criticism from you would actually steer my life because I'm, I'm, I'm so unsure of myself.
2: I mean, I think that when you talk about I would lose respect for you, or you would lose respect for me, or I'm afraid of that, I'm thinking this language of losing respect that is critical and judgmental is a, is a veiled way of talking about I'm threatened. Yeah. Instead of talking about how that makes me feel, I tell you what's wrong about what you're doing. You know, that form of uh, women criticizing other women's choices because it actually throws them back on the choices they have or have not made themselves is a more honest proposition. Mm. Does that make sense?
4: Yeah, it really does.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, So much. (laughs) (laughs) I think so much of our relationship as like us battling misogyny, like, us having to deal with all these misogynists, female artists, female dealer, and we're together and we're like, and then suddenly it was a a reframe where I thought, what are the ways where we're like perpetuating that on each other, a discomfort with femininity that I hadn't really thought about the ways that we might direct it against each Mm. other because I always feel like we're united against Mm. it. And I was like, oh yeah, that's true. Like we really need to think about that Or, or be able to talk about it really openly.
4: And that that might be true freedom.
3: Yeah, and I guess the whole point is that we may never make those choices, but to feel that that we are free to make those choices should we want to.
2: As part of their friendship and collaboration, they have often joined in thinking that they are resisting what they call misogynistic notions about women. But what emerged is their understanding of how much they had actually internalized those very same ideas that then become powder keg of judgment from one woman to another. If you are to be a true artist, you cannot be a mother you cannot be a wife you have to prove that you are serious and committed you will have to forego those other roles and maybe the true freedom as she says is the multiplicity of roles and the freedom to choose which roles to live
0: Esther Perel is a therapist, best-selling author, speaker, and host of the podcasts "Where Should We Begin?" and "How's Work." To apply with a colleague or partner to do a session for the podcast, or to follow along with each episode's show notes, go to howswork.esterperel.com. How's Work is produced by Magnificent Noise for Gimlet and Esther Perel Productions. Our production staff includes Eric Newsom, Eva Walchover. Huate Gatana and Kristen Muller. Original music and additional production by Paul Schneider. And the executive producers of Howe's Work are Esther Perel and Jesse Baker. We would also like to thank Lydia Polgreen, Colin Campbell, Courtney Hamilton, Nick Oxenhorn, Sarah Kramer, Jack Saul, and the entire Esther Perel Global Media team.
1: You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: First thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully, those leftovers are still good. Why
2: did I get CC'd home on?
3: No. (laughs) You can't escape the to do list, but
0: you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products.